Hi everyone, we are Dani Hernandez and Carlos Navia, and we are hosting Aula Divergente, which is a freshette production in which we will analyze the evolution of the educational systems in Latin America and the Caribbean. Dani. Yes, Carlos, a freshette production in Spanish. So if you know Spanish or if you just want to practice your Spanish and you want to know more about what is happening now in Latin America, please feel free to join us. We are going to have our first episode airing on July 15. Also, if you want to know more about our previous work, you can listen to some previous interviews that we have done here in Freshet, or you can listen to the Flux episode that I produced last year. So just subscribe. You can find a link here in the footnotes. Go ahead, subscribe, and join us in this journey through Latin America, starting with Chile. This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore mass shootings in the USA. My guest is Dinor Bloom, who explores this phenomenon using a sociological lens. Mass shootings today are a significantly younger phenomenon than they used to be in the 20th century. So in the 20th century, the typical mass shooting was a man in his 40s or 50s getting laid off, getting fired from the job unexpectedly not being able to handle the stress and or the shame of that, coming home, killing their families, and then killing themselves. Dinor Bloom is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at California State University, Los Angeles. Together with Christian Gonzalez Jaworski, he published the book Critical Mass, Understanding and Fixing the Social Roots of Mass Shootings in the United States. He is also the co-host of the podcast Learning Made Easier. Dinor Bloom, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So can you give us an extent of, or give us an overview of sort of the volume of mass shootings that have happened in the U.S., particularly over time? Like, how do we, how can we begin thinking about the number of mass shootings that have occurred in the U.S.? So mass shootings are a fairly unique American phenomenon, but they're, unfortunately for us, not a very new phenomenon. In the 20th century, we saw about 900 mass shootings, and we think, oh my God, that's a lot, and that pales in comparison to the number of mass shootings we've seen just in the last decade or so, where we've had over 3,000 mass shootings in the span of about nine or 10 years. And so we're seeing a sharp uptick in the number of mass shootings recently. So in the 2000s, we've seen a massive uptick, basically, is what you're saying? Yeah. So you've analyzed thousands of these mass shootings over time. What sort of patterns jump out at you? Um, a few patterns jump out. One is that mass shootings today are a significantly younger phenomenon than they used to be in the 20th century. So in the 20th century, the typical mass shooting was a man in his 40s or 50s getting laid off, getting fired from the job unexpectedly, not being able to handle the stress and or the shame of that, coming home, killing their families, and then killing themselves. And so it was a way out of a financial hardship and out of an embarrassing situation. Today, we're seeing a lot of mass shooters between the ages of 18 and 30. Uh, so it's a much younger phenomenon. And while poverty and job loss are some of the fuels uh, for the anger that gets these people to shoot, they're not the only things that get shoot. We see people getting angry at house parties, at bars, places where there's a lot of alcohol flowing, and people act uh, badly sometimes when they're drinking, including through violence. What about gender and race? What sort of patterns do we see in with those factors? So with gender, we see that mass shootings are almost exclusively committed by men. We very, very, very rarely see women commit mass shootings when we 
do see it, it's typically either as a response to abuse or like what we saw in 2015 in San Bernardino. You very rarely have a Bonnie and Clyde scenario where a woman joins her partner uh, in a crime spree, including in violence. As far as the racial patterns go, we actually see that most mass shootings, kind of like most single victim homicides, are intraracial. So we're seeing a lot of white on white, black on black type of deal. But where we see it being interracial tends a lot more to be with white shooters. Right. Okay. So it's a younger demographic. It's a male demographic, often white demographic that we're talking about. Um, for the interracial, yes. For intra, it's more of a mixed bag. Right. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. And so when we think of mass shootings, are, are they different in any way from some of the school shootings that we've seen, which make headline news and, and just they stick in our mind for some reason? I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to talk about these mass shootings because all of them are so horrendous. But there's something... There seems to be something particularly horrendous about a school shooting. Sure. And that something horrendous is we expect schools to be safe. We expect that kind of the people's status as students is going to protect that. The fact that it's a school is going to protect them. We're horrified because we don't, we're not surprised when there's violence at a bar, at a house party. We go, oh, it's young people being idiots. Or I hope some people go, I hope they're caring so they could have protected themselves. But we don't have that kind of expectation or that kind of fear. At school. Now that said, the fact that school shootings are rare is part of why they get as many headlines as they do. We are unfortunately seeing more school shootings, but compared to house parties and compared to bars, schools are still fairly and very comparatively safe spaces to be because there is no alcohol. And theoretically, there are more eyes and ears. And that's one of the things I think we need to get into if we're going to talk about solutions. And that's getting more eyes and ears on the problem, uh, not just in terms of law enforcement, but in terms of stuff that's pro-social that can help people stem their anger before mm. it reaches that boiling. So before we look at some of these possible social solutions, let's call them. I want to dig into this really uniquely American phenomenon here a bit more. Many people know that gun laws in the U.S. or the Second Amendment in the U.S. sort of guarantees a right to bear arms. And, and there's been variations of gun laws over time, and there's a big gun lobby. Is there any correlation when you look across all of the data? Is there any correlation to, you know, stricter gun laws resulting in fewer mass shootings or the inverse? No, you have it spot on for a lot of states. Even when we look at places like California, places like Illinois, where there are strict gun laws and there are shootings that happen, the gun laws make it a lot tougher for people to get their hands on weapons. And so what a lot of them do, especially for a lot of the Chicago shootings, is they travel a couple hours to Wisconsin or to Indiana, states where there are much more relaxed gun laws. And then they drive back home, use the weapons at home. In California, we've seen people go into Arizona and go into Nevada to get weapons because there are looser gun laws and then they bring them back. And so the fact that it's much easier access because of these relaxed gun laws means that one, the gun laws are very inconsistent, the way they're written and the way they're enforced across the states. And people who are that angry are going to act, unfortunately, they're going to be practical about their anger and they're going to find the path of least resistance, even if that means spending a couple hours and, you know, and gas money to go out of state to get their weapons. So one of the hard things, I think, for 
people probably in and outside the United States is to figure out why this is happening to such an extent and, and particularly this increase that you're talking about. And often an argument is presented that it is sort of a mental health issue of the shooter. There, you know, there's a few bad apples and it's a psychological problem and we need to sort of address that. What's your response to such an argument that is often made at, in the aftermath of the shooting? First of all, I think it's a bad faith argument because if people truly, truly, truly believe that mental health was the cause of violent behavior, then we'd see a lot more funding for mental health research, mental health treatment, mental health access. But, and I know that the Senate recently included a bill that adds funding for it. We'll see what effect that has, but that's the first time in decades they've addressed it. And so I think uh, mental health just acts as a scapegoat. And that's a huge problem because we're dealing with a population that's already stigmatized. People are afraid of mental illness. They assume that mental illness by default means going to actively commit violence, but most people who suffer from mental illnesses are more likely to be victims of violence. But now we're kind of stigmatizing them further because we're associating this really bad behavior with a condition that we're afraid of. So sort of another way to approach it, which is I, I think the way you are approaching it as a sociologist, is to look at sort of some of these social social factors that are creating the conditions by which a, a shooter can sort of emerge and then commit violence. So can you talk me through what sort of social factors exist that are actually sort of creating the conditions for a shooter to emerge? Sure. And these are conditions that can not only create the conditions, they can also push a person. So sometimes that person who went crazy may have had one too many stressors happen and it's an overload and they don't know how to handle it. But things like chronic poverty, things like job loss or high unemployment rates, things like being underpaid, meaning you're working full time and you still struggle to pay the bills because the job doesn't pay. We look at things like relationship problems. And that doesn't mean that, you know, your first partner is going to be you know, the only partner you have. But we know that domestic violence is a gigantic red flag that can accelerate toward murder if it goes unchecked. And you know, now the recent bill that was passed looks to look at domestic violence as far as limiting access to guns. But one, where the hell has that been up until now? And two, you know, what do we do? I don't think that... Actually, let me backtrack, get my train of thought going. So we're talking about relationship problems being a red flag. It's not that every single divorce or every single breakup means this person is dangerous, but it really does mean that you've got to pay attention to signs of domestic violence. You've got to pay signs to, to different forms of abuse because if a person is willing to hurt the people that are supposed to be obligated to love and to care for, then there's nothing that's going to prevent them from hurting people that they don't share that, that obligation to. The last two parts I'll say is Especially with younger shooters, we're looking at a lot of people who are isolated, where their only community is online, and that's not to disparage the presence of online communities, but when you don't have people who can keep tabs on you in person and say, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? That can be a problem. And then the last big one is alcohol, where, especially with younger shooters, people get drunk, they see someone they don't like, and or they get into an argument, and one thing leads to another, and when people are drinking, they don't make their best decisions. And if they're firing inside a house or inside a bar, bullets are going to ricochet and hit people that aren't necessarily involved in the altercation. When you look at all these different factors, does any one stick out to help understand why shooters are so young, so much younger than they were previously? I would say probably the combination of isolation 
and alcohol. The alcohol we kind of see in more social settings, and so it kind of affects the place of the mass shootings. Mm. The headline grabbers tend to be more of the isolated ones, the ones that are uh, described as loners. The alcohol ones tend to be kind of the more common ones, and that's more of the house parties and the bars. But presumably house parties and bars existed before the 2000s, right? And so what is it about isolation? Like, why do we see so much isolation today? And, you know, in particular from the 2000s onwards, why do young men feel so isolated? I think they feel like they've been promised a world that hasn't been given to them. And they don't know how to deal with the fact that they're not being given what they believe they're owed. And one of the things they've been taught from a young age is violence is an acceptable way to get what you want. If we look at American history, violence is certainly part of this country's history. If they're going to look at it, they're going to say, well, this was what was done. And so I should be allowed to be as violent as I need to be in order to get my way. That is one of the thought processes they go through. And so why men though, right? So if it's not women that are doing that, because they're being taught the same history, there's white women that aren't shooting in interracial. But women have also been historically treated as second class citizens. And even in history, they are taught as kind of bit players or talk as background characters. And so there's a different kind of strain. I think that that can lead to a lot more emotional strain and maybe self-hate, self-loathing. Whereas for the men, it's a lot more of a sense of entitlement and I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to take what I want, even if the other person doesn't want it. It's so hard to sort of understand, right? Like, what is it? Like the the idea, and I think you have a chapter in your book about toxic masculinity, right? What is toxic masculinity? And does that help us begin to explain this very strange phenomenon of young men resorting to guns to solve, you know, whatever problems they're having? It does. So the way Christian, my co-author, and I defined toxic masculinity was an intentional, meaning the person wants to portray it this way. It's conscious, so it's not accidental, and an exaggerated performance of masculine stereotypes. And we think it explains both the younger phenomenon today, but even the older phenomenon in the 20th century, because part of the idea of masculinity was this idea that the man was the primary and or the only income earner in the household. And in both centuries, one of the lessons that was taught was that violence is an acceptable way to resolve disputes. And when you're taught that it's okay to be violent to get your way and that violence and alcohol are two things that go hand in hand, that can lead to a person thinking, okay, I had something really bad happen to me or I really don't like this person. The way to handle it is violence because that's what's been modeled for them. That's what's been taught for them. And it's been taught to them primarily by men they respect, be it Mm -hmm. parents, be it teachers, be it coaches. And then is the sort of the key issue is because that sort of toxic masculinity and resorting to violence is, you know, I live in the United Kingdom and and that's quite a common feeling. You know, I think Gary Young, who's been on the show before, he's written about how violent and potentially even more violent the English culture is and for men than it is in the U.S., But the difference in his mind is that in the U.S., it's much easier to then access guns. And so therefore, that violence takes on, you know, a different meaning in the end. Yeah, I would tend to agree that that access to guns makes it a lot more possible for a lot more young men to act on their anger. And there's a problem where so many people's anger is reaching that boiling point where that violence feels almost inevitable or Mm. just if at the very least it feels plausible, like something they could do reasonably to solve their problem. I want to turn to the issue of the interracial shootings, which is a sort of a subcomponent of the larger issue of mass shootings. As you 
you said earlier, it's mostly white shooters. Why is that? How do we understand the racial dynamics of mass shooters being, you know, young white men? I think we combine it with the sense of entitlement. One of the mass shootings that jumps to mind is from 2019 in El Paso, Texas, where a white shooter drove, I think, 600 or 700 miles to a specifically Hispanic town in Texas, as he knew parents would be doing back to school shopping in late August and opened fire. And he had wrote in a screed, I ref- I'm not going to give it the credence of a manifesto where, or the credit of a manifesto, but he writes this diatribe complaining about automation, but also about immigrants coming to steal jobs. And that second complaint is a fairly common refrain throughout American history of when economic times are tough, people worry about the quote unquote right kind of immigrant coming over. Whereas when money is flowing freely, people don't care who does the work. They go, hey, there's work to be done. There's money to be made. We don't care what people's legal status is. The economy takes a downturn and all of a sudden people start looking at it and they start feeling like something that, that they were thinking about is taken from them, even though there's no support for it. You know, we know that a lot of the work that undocumented people do, I remember the New York Times running a study where they paid people, I think, $10 an hour to pick blueberries or pick something. And out of 130 or 140 people who started the season, only like seven finished it. And that's with being paid you know, much better than most undocumented mm-hmm. people get. But for a shooter who's angry, they don't go, well, this isn't work I was doing anyway. They go, oh my God, this person poses a threat to me. They pose a threat to my existence because they're potentially taking money out of my pocket. That's mm-hmm. how they interpret it. And they feel entitled to use violence to act on that. Does this racial component sort of also touch on like the longer history of America and some of the racism that we've we've seen over time and you know, sort of this is building on it in a way. I think it absolutely does. And it makes me then wonder, you know, if we're thinking of toxic masculinity in the U.S. and then sort of this racial component that is sort of longstanding in the U.S., are there differences in toxic masculinity between races? Yes and no, in the sense that you see machismo not just in white culture, you see machismo in black culture, you see it in Latino culture, you see it in Mm -hmm. Asian culture. The question is, is what kind of community exists and does the community community encourage that or do they try and stem that balance? And I think that kind of varies neighborhood by neighborhood. So there are going to be neighborhoods that are more violent because that's kind of what people see as a means of survival. And there are going to be ones where there's machismo, but it takes the place of boasting in terms of, say, shoes. It takes the, it manifests itself in terms of boasting in terms of style, in terms of what you drive. So that machismo can exist in different ways. It doesn't just have to be violent. You know, when you did this analysis of over 2,000 mass shootings over time in the U.S., did anything surprise you did something like jump out at you that you like that you just that surprised you just how many like the sheer volume of mass shootings surprised us because our definition of mass shootings is a little bit different than the fbi's and so that we knew that that was going to open up the number of cases so the fbi defines a mass shooting as four more people who are killed not including the shooter or shooters we defined as four more people who were killed or injured not including the shooter or shooters and one of the things that you know jumped out as along with the 
sheer number is a lot of these mass shootings end up with one person dead and like three or four injured. And so they count as mass shootings for us because we've got four more people who are killed or injured, not including the shooters, but the FBI ignores it. And there's a case I remember didn't make a lot of headlines, but there's a house party in Chicago and one person shot seven people, but he shot them all below the waist so that they wouldn't die. And so all I could think of is like, yeah, that's going to absolutely count as a mass shooting. Like seven people were targeted, but the FBI is not going to count it because no one died as a result of their injuries. And so I think just tweaking that definition slightly opened up a lot more cases for us to analyze. And we saw, we learned that most of these mass shootings don't get a lot of publicity. Oh, they might get a paragraph or two in the local paper. They might get a five minute spot on local news and that's about it. Would you say it's normalized in the U.S. at this point? I think certain ones are. I know that the ones that gain headlines, I worry about them being normalized because one of the things that we notice is the high-profile mass shooters, some of them are uh, very much fame-seeking. There's a mass shooting in Gilroy, California, not too far south of San Jose a few years ago, and the shooter was 19 years old, and he was the son or the grandson of someone who worked in, I think, the local city council. His brother's were accomplished athletes, but apparently his classmates didn't really know who he was and he wanted to be remembered and he didn't care why he'd be remembered, just that he'd be remembered. And so he live streamed his killing spree at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, you know, because any eyes are good eyes, any publicity is good publicity. And so I worry about those becoming normalized because it means that we're accepting the idea that mass shootings deserve a certain level of fame or mass shooters rather deserve a certain level of fame. I think you've got to report the incident, but do so in a way that doesn't give the shooter that additional publicity. They do things like that in, say, like New Zealand, right, where they don't reveal the name or the picture of the person who committed the crime. That, combined with their gun laws, have resulted in far fewer mass shootings than we see in the U.S. Is there any country that is at all similar in terms of mass shootings as the U.S.? Off the top of my head, I can't think of any that are that similar just because I'd need to do a little bit more research to give you a more thorough answer. But when we look at Western European countries, when we look at Asian countries, we know that they tend to have stricter gun laws. And that keeps even the countries where people carry. You know, We know Switzerland, for example, people are allowed to have weapons, but it is so highly regulated and people are monitored fairly regularly for how they use their weapons. It's a uniquely different gun culture than what we see in the U.S., where a lot of people, you know, like to believe that even today it's the Wild West. It's the 1800s and that using the gun is the way to solve a dispute. So what on earth can be done about this? Because it seems so intractable. It's been going on for so long. In many cases, as you said, it feels normalized. And I mean, even just this last basically 30 days, there's just been so many stories that come out, it's hard to actually even remember where it all began. So what can we begin to do about this? So I think we've got short-term and long-term answers. And I think we need both because, you know, like you just said, it's been such an intractable problem. If we just say, well, it's intractable, we can't do anything about it. It's not going to make the situation any better. Um, so long-term, one is we start teaching kids, especially boys from a young age, that violence is not the only way, it's not the acceptable way to resolve disputes. But as far as some concrete steps that we can start taking in the interim, one is investing more in our communities in terms of jobs, in terms of volunteer opportunities, in terms of pro-social rec, you know, keep people in a social area 
where they can have fun or earn money or do good things. And that's a way for them to potentially blow off steam. It's something that's accessible to them. It's something that's part of their neighborhood. We talk about having liability insurance for firearms so that the more guns you own, you're paying a premium each year on each weapon. And if any of those weapons are stolen and not reported or they're used in a way that shouldn't be used, there's some financial responsibility attached. We like the idea of the red flag laws targeting people who have a history of domestic violence, assault, battery, because it's such a big red flag. And like we said, or like I said, if a person's willing to hurt the people they're supposed to care for, then there's nothing that's going to prevent them from hurting the people that they don't have that obligation to. And then as far as reducing school shootings go, we're looking at things like what's called block scheduling, where instead of classes being one hour each and the kid goes through six or seven of them in a day, where you're dealing with say 30 to 40 people who, like you, are going through puberty, meaning their bodies hate each other, they're not going to be in the best mood because most school shootings are committed at the high school level and we see them committed by other high school students who feel isolated, who feel angry. Having the longer classes and fewer classes each day allows for a little bit more of a sense of community to develop, to get to know each other. It doesn't mean that they're always going to love each other. You know, I know that it, it was high school, it was college. We all, at least in high school, we all had to be there. And so you wanted to make it the best you could, even if you didn't love everyone you were in class with. But finding a way to reduce that anger. We also look at, you know, we know that this won't be popular, but limiting the sales of refrigerated alcohol, because we know a lot of people buy the chilled 24 packs or 12 packs, they drink. And by the times they bump into someone early on at a party that they don't like, they're ready to act on that alcohol. They're ready to act on that anger in a way that we don't think they would if they were sober. You know, we've seen research by Robert Nash Parker and Kevin McCaffrey and by others where they just limited the the sale of cold malt liquor, of cold 40s in neighborhoods, and violent assaults plummeted by like 20 or 25 percent following years. And so if we extend that, we think that that could put a dent into assaults, into batteries, and into mass shootings. I mean, a, a very nice menu of different options. Uh, you know, I do hope that states and the federal government can start working on some of them. There is one more um, idea I do have for schools, and that's adding more counselors, adding more monitors, and making it routine for students. I Ideally, even adding them into workplaces and just have it be part of the school routine where it's not, oh, my God, this person went to see the counselor. What's wrong with them? Just, oh, today's their day to talk to the counselor. No big deal in that way. There are some extra eyes and ears who don't have to talk to law enforcement, but can say, OK, let me find you some help. Let me get you the help you need before things hit the fan, before uh, situations get out of hand. I really like the idea of like treating this as a social phenomenon and therefore a social problem that needs to be resolved rather than individualize it and then, you know, give teacher weapons or put in more metal detectors in school, you know, entranceways, which always seems, as you said, it's bad faith in a way. It does make me wonder, you know, the current economy around the world is sort of, you know, inflation is high, the job wage growth has been stagnant and is certainly not increasing uh, at the low end. And it makes me wonder if issues of poverty are going to get worse. And some of these pressures that you've talked about may also get worse. And therefore, we may see more mass shootings. Like, is that actually a possibility? Like, I hate to say it. It is, unless the federal government does something to intervene, whether that's through job creation, whether that's through stimulus checks, any way of alleviating that economic pressure is potentially life-saving. Well, Dinar Bloom, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was really a pleasure to talk today. Thank you for having me on. 
Dinor Bloom is a lecturer at Cal State LA and recently co-wrote the book Critical Mass. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktas, Obafemi Ngunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.